there, Shep and Maniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about front end web design and development. I'm Dave in the house with the kids, Rupert, and with me is Chris in his nice luxury office space in Bend, Oregon, Coyer. Hey, Chris, how are you? Sorry, you could have this too, Dave. Just just move to Bend. After this is over, we'll get a nice office together. The family will play in the woods. You'll, I could probably live in your basement for a few years, so that works out. Yeah. So. No just, basements. There's too much bedrock here. We're too close oh. to the mountains. Just no, no basements in the, in the bend. Uh, yeah, I grew up with the basement too. Anyway, we have a, a, a great guest on the show today, and we're going to end up talking about probably stacks, full stacks, jam stacks, frameworks, the whole thing. It's Tom Preston Warner. Hey, Tom. Hey, Chris. How you doing? Hey, Dave. Glad to be on the show. Hey. Yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. You know, you know, obviously, I think a lot of people know who you are, but 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 a resurgence of Tom with the um, uh, with this Redwood JS stuff. So I think that's definitely worth talking about. That I find it absolutely fascinating. You know, I've been watching it, looking at it. You know, just even if you don't have an excuse to use it right now, I think it's worth watching just for the like, gosh, it's fascinating what's happening with all these technologies coming together. It almost feels like a, um, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like to you because you work on it all day, probably every day, but this uh, kind of a natural evolution of like, at some point there's going to be best of breed tools for things like front-end frameworks and data storage and stuff. And they're in the the best of them will form this Voltron ball and exist in the world. And maybe that's what Redwood JS is. So first, maybe, I mean, do you wanna is that what's like hot on your mind recently? Is this like your biggest thing? Yeah, I'd I'd say Redwood is definitely what I love talking about right now. And I think you're exactly right. I think we're at this point where people are searching for the integration of the parts of front-end and back-end web development that have become popular over the last 10 years in the JavaScript and TypeScript world, and yet who has pieced them together? It seems like everyone does it on their own, and everyone takes a lot of time to do it, time that they could be spending on their actual application, and it's time now for a full-stack integrated mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unavoidable, I think, that we're going to talk about opinionated frameworks versus unopinionated frameworks. And, and would you would you say it's fair to throw this on the opinionated side? It seems heavily so. Yeah, that's where we started. Yeah. You know, I come from a Ruby on Rails background, so that's that was revelatory to me in my younger days. And and Redwood is the same. We make choices for you so that you don't have to make them. We give you the happy path. If you want to stray from that path, we want to make that possible. But your happy path will be easier. So the old saying, make easy things easy and hard things possible. That's what we're going for. Yeah, that's great. So it seems but I'm almost a little more forthright about it on the homepage. It says, okay, here's the, here's the for the podcast listeners, here's the laundry list. React, GraphQL, Prisma. Uh, I guess that's the three. Is there any more you'd throw on the list? I mean, that's what the, the, the homepage says. But that's front-end framework, way to communicate with back-end and back-end. Yeah, I think those are the big three technologies that you're going to key in on. Yeah. And so, but what does it go, like, what if you, what about CSS, you know? Well, Is so that where we, it stops? Do you stop caring at that point? We started with the idea that we would heavily integrate styled components, which I love and okay. are amazing. Yeah. And and that would be part of the tech stack. But as we got into it, we started looking at, you know, I mean, one of the guys that started, joined, that joined the core um, was really into Tailwinds. And so then we were like, well, should it be Tailwinds or should it be 
style components? What should CSS look like? And then we realized that if we made a strong choice, we would be alienating some portion of the potential user base too much. Like you just, there is no consensus on CSS frameworks on what to do about it. And so this is one of those things like semicolons. You'll, you will, if you hard enforce no semicolons, and to be fair, Redwood ships with the opinion that you shouldn't have semicolons. But if you were to say, you will never have semicolons, you can never, ever have semicolons, then some portion of the world would say, we have to have semicolons, hard pass. And we don't yeah, want sure. to be that, right? So opinionated means opinionated, not dictatorial. Okay. So we chose not to, not to be heavily opinionated on CSS framework currently, although we do use Tailwinds for um, the scaffolded components. So if you scaffold okay, out yeah. uh, something, then we do use Tailwind for that. I, I I agree that that's a that's a bold one. I mean, even React is a choice. I mean, you're saying sure. no Angular, so that's you know you're like lost those right, people. Right, but you kind of yeah. you almost have to make that choice. It's such an integral part of how it comes together. Either you use you're going to use React, you're going to use Vue, you're going to use one of the other ones. You're going to come up with something new. Like you need something to be how you write your your front end stuff. And I mean, yeah. I guess you could I claim hate to call that you CSS need that. trivial, but maybe. Yeah, I mean CSS though is it is a layer. On top of that, it is first you need the structure and then you can style it. So it is one level away from the content itself. It's, it's integral to it. I'm not downplaying the importance of CSS, but there is no there is no consensus, and I don't want to alienate people. And if, I mean, we are alienating view people. People that say I will only use view, we will alienate them. But looking at what's popular right now, looking at at where people's minds are at, React has the bulk of the mind share. That's and, and to be honest, it's just where I come from. We started using yeah, React sure. at my current startup, Chatterbug. And a lot of the design principles of Redwood come from the experiences that we've had there and wanted to codify. You know, we just we're building this front end stuff and it's just too hard. We spent too much time picking technologies, trying to make them work together and wondering why, why is there not a framework that does this stuff for me? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, it's interesting. I, you know, somebody, I think <laughs> I was camping and I got back and we have tweets. They're like, you need to check out Redwood and have Tom on. And, and we were just like, well, okay, I guess something happened this weekend. Um, <laughs> a new framework. And I went and I was like, oh, it's React. It's a, uh, like, is it just, I don't know, a fla- uh, like a, like a flavor of React is sort of what I was wondering. Like, is it React plus a few components? But the more I've dug into it, it's really kind of more like, what everyone's been asking for, like the rails for JavaScript in, in some ways. Yeah, that's that's the that's what we're trying to fill. I'm hesitant to call it the rails of JavaScript because yeah, that yeah. brings with it a lot of baggage. And I love Rails. I I Rails is what made it possible for me to build GitHub. Like there would be no GitHub without Rails. I'm I'm fairly certain. And so I owe my success to to Rails. And so I I don't want to rag on rails but i have my problems with rails like i don't i don't want to write rails anymore i want to build in this newer way using yeah. react as a front end system and i want to i want to when i build it i want to be able to deploy it in a different way as well i want to deploy it serverlessly as serverless, serverlessly as possible i want to distribute it globally there's just these other aspects of it that i that that are better to me that are fascinating that i want to build on and so to call it the rails of JavaScript to me is, 
it's there's too much baggage. That's too much like, oh, okay, why are you doing this different than Rails then? Why are you doing why are you constraining me in this way? Why is this opinion different? You, you end up with ember essentially, right? Like right. If, if you try to be I mean, I think everything new and revolutionary that comes out it, that's that is really truly that isn't just X for Y. You know, it's not it's not or like people like to say today. They're like, Oh, I'm building the GitHub for whatever. I was like, don't mm. don't build the GitHub for whatever. Just build the whatever. And mm, and yeah. make it its own thing like what is it that makes your thing special it doesn't have to be this the x for y uh i think that's too limiting i think it's it makes you want to copy too much and so for red redwood redwood is its own thing and even the name itself is counter to everything that i see like i'm just tired of everything being this like physics-based atomic thing like react is like an atom thing and atom it's you know atoms atom thing and and like, I don't know, everything's all technical and physics. And, and I love that stuff. I started as a physics major. It's my favorite thing ever. But it's just too much the same. Like I just, what you see, like you, you see a Bohr model of an atom as a logo and you're like, that could literally be any of 16,000 different software projects. Sure. And so I was, I was thinking about it. And uh, this framework was, was actually originally called Hammer. But there is a project <laughs> already called Hammer. So yeah, there is. So I had to come up with a new name. Yeah, and we had good luck with having a little cat too, so that worked out. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. But anyway, Redwood comes from that counter. It's just being, just trying to be different, just trying to, to use first principles. I've always been about first principles, and so Redwood is from first principles. It's not the X for Y. It's not the anything for JavaScript. It is just Redwood trying to bring together great technologies, integrate them better than you've ever seen, erase all of the boilerplate that you have to write, erase all of the time that you spend trying to get your tools to play together, especially when you try to do fancy things at build time. I mean, just getting Jest integrated, like it's still in progress and it's going to take us a while because we do some fancy mm. things for developer experience, but you pay the price in integration because Jest is like, I don't know anything about what you're doing over here in Webpack. So now we have to teach Jest how to do all those things that Webpack is doing for us at build mm. time, right? This is not easy. And you as an application builder shouldn't have to spend your time doing that. Like a, a framework, when a framework is done well, the framework is doing the heavy lifting and all the really awful crap that you don't ever want to have to touch, right? You, you take the hit. What so that, are those things in this case? There's Because it's not just a smashing together of React, GraphQL, and Prisma. I mean, I guess it is, but 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 it does it does fancy stuff. The, the first time I saw it was Sean Wang at a post that said, React single file components are here, was the title <laughs> of the blog post. And I was like, what? React released single file components? That's crazy. But he, they didn't, of course. What they were talking about was Redwood and your structure of how you expect components to be built, which are... I, I mean, like we said, we didn't. When I think of single file components, I think of the CSS aspect being in there. But whatever, anybody can do that. But in your case, it was kind of like these. I don't know. It's it's your expectations of how our component are built are a little different, right? And and that's what Redwood. That's one thing that Redwood brings, right? Is this different style of component building? Yeah, I'd say they're they're not radically different. They still look the same as you expect. It's mostly that we expect you to put them in a certain place in the directory structure. That's all. Mm -hmm. There's opinions about that. Here's where you put things, right? Like, why should I have to decide where to put files in my project? It's it's ridiculous. Just tell me where to put them. Like, I'll put them wherever you want. Just tell me where to put them. Sure. So we tell you sure. where to put them. That's half Next the is like that. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, yeah, right. And this this is this is common for frameworks, right? But this it's it's all part of the decision making process that you have to go through and that drains you if you have to do it all yourself. So it's not true of React. React itself doesn't care. Well, that's the your framework that's the problem. Cares, that's the problem with React. The problem with React is that it doesn't care. It doesn't care so much that it makes everyone do the work and everyone does it differently. And then let's say you want to go from one job where you're doing React to another job where you're doing React. You may as well be using different front-end systems because they can be so radically different. The way that they build, do you use hooks? Do you not use hooks? What's your CSS story? How do you do data fetching? Like what all of these things, all these little things end up being different, right? Redux, no Redux. Like what, what is it? And React is one of these, is one of many. And so... I think there's confusion when people call React a framework because it's. I don't think it's trying to be a framework. It's trying to be a rendering layer. It's trying to do one-way data rendering and do it really, really well. And it does. It does it amazingly well. It's awesome, mm-hmm. the things that it gives you. But it's not, to me, what I would think of it's as a framework. It's not quite useful enough by itself. So it always comes with with a bunch of friends. Right, exactly. It's, it's always yeah. React and friends. And then it's the and friends that makes it really hard to go from job to job. And so one, one sort of aspirational goal of Redwood is that you could work one place and you're like, oh yeah, we use Redwood. We build our app with Redwood. Uh, and you work there and then you go to somewhere else and they're like, oh yeah, we also use uh, Redwood. I mean, like we need a Redwood developer. And you get in and you open up the application and you're like, oh, this is Redwood. I know this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that you can do that with Rails for the most part, obviously, you know, when Rails apps get big, they end up diverging. But you at least know that some basic assumptions will be true. Sure. I think that's true, too. I mean, we I still use Rails. You know, I, write, I almost use it more now, weirdly. But anyway, the, you know, when you like you have a Rails 4 app and you got to get it to 5 and then you got to get it to 6, you can do it yourself. But they're so similar that you can hire a specialist to do that. They'll roll in and do that. And that's and they don't even need to know your app all that well. Yeah, it's because, there's, it. it's because there's standards. There's standards of what it means to be a Rails app. There's standards of what it means to do things in a Ruby on Rails way. And there's some consensus around best practices and what are the most common plugins and things that you would use. And there is no, there's very little convergence in the React world. There's starting to be some. And that's why I think you start seeing more frameworks right now. In fact, we're seeing several of them that I think are all trying to solve the same problem. And that's great. Competition is good. And the different approaches will be very interesting to see play out. And so for us, we're focusing on, like you said, the stack that is React on the front end mm. and GraphQL as a communication layer and using Prisma as the way that you talk to your database on the back end. And that will become more sophisticated over time to give you more choice in how you do that. The number of oh, types of databases that, that you can cool. that you can talk to. Um, and then, but also there's this notion that eventually with Redwood, you, we can accommodate some of these opinions. Like it could be that because your front end and your back end are totally decoupled through GraphQL, that you could swap certain things out. Or from the very beginning, we've thought that Redwood is multi-client ready, we will say. So right now you'd say, I'm going to start building a web app because that's easy and fast and I can get it done. Gets me something online. And then, oh, whatever you built starts to become popular. And you say, obviously, I need a mobile app. And so what's your story for a mobile app? If you're working in Rails, your story is probably, oh, crap, now we need GraphQL, and so let's build out a GraphQL API mm-hmm. to serve our mobile app. And now you've built your business logic twice. And so from the very beginning of a Redwood app, we ask you to think about your API and to think in an API mindset. 
And that will future-proof you in a way that allows you to build any type of client and still consume the same GraphQL API that is better designed because it is the only way that your front end talks to your back end. And so if you want to add a mobile client or you want to add a command line interface or you want to add, uh, let's say your thing works on a kiosk at a mall, like all of these different things can all talk GraphQL. They're all just consumers. Mm-hmm. And, and from Forcing day one- Forcing you to dog food yourself is a good move. Right. Yeah. And, and, but, but even, even beyond that, you could say at some point, someone's going to say, Redwood is great. I don't want to use React. I want to use Vue. And eventually we'll have some way for you to write your web side with Vue. It's inevitable. It'll happen eventually. It's not our focus at the moment, but I think it, because it's GraphQL, because there is this decoupling, we could build something out that still maintains the Redwood philosophy, but just does it in the way that you would approach it from Vue. Yeah, that's great. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Bug Herd. Welcome, Bug Herd. Glad to have you. This is a great product. It's spelled just how you think it's going to be, B-U-G-H-E-R-D, bugherd.com. And it's about collecting visual feedback for websites. But whatever you're picturing, I think it's better than that. Like, it's really good. It's this... It's, you know, it's a SaaS app, so it's a website that tracks all this stuff, and it's a plug-in for your browser. So if you're like me, and this happens to me all the time, I almost need to, like, not visit my own websites after a certain hour of the day because every second I'm looking at my own website, I'm critiquing everything. It's just in my mind, you know, I'm like, ooh, that's not quite right. Or I'll find a bug or something because I'm often, like, the biggest users of my own websites. I think Bugherd taps into that in a way where, like, if I see something that's wrong, I don't have to then, like, take a screenshot of it and, like, maybe annotate it and email it to myself, like, deal with this in the morning or log it somewhere weird. It makes that natural. It's like, oh, I see the Bugherd tool is right here. I can just, like, essentially what they say is, like, it's like putting a sticky note on a website. But you do it right there, and then it's not just, like, a screenshot and an email. It's part of the bug herd system. It's like, oh, this is a thing that needs to be addressed. I pointed right to it on a real website, and it's attached there. So, you know, and it's not just you, although you could use it by yourself. I think that would be a nice use case, actually. A lot of us work on one-person teams, but it's team-based generally. Uh, and then everybody can see it. Oh, look, there's an issue on this website. And everybody's using it all the time. It's not just part of one little sprint. At least that's how I you know, picture this being used and how I'm using it, is that all the time, it's just like part of the workflow. And the workflow is customizable too. So it's like, what do you want to happen when one of those new sticky notes happens? It's like, well, it's kind of treated like a bug. It's like, this needs to be triaged. The right people need to see it. It needs to be addressed or explained and closed in some way. And it doesn't enforce one particular workflow of that. That workflow is customizable too. And I think that's a big deal. So it works into however you normally deal with this. It like makes what you normally do better. So check out bugherd.com. So some of the so we talked opinions to some degree. There's a couple of friends here in the gaps that I'm curious about. Like the it just says GraphQL is is Apollo part of the party or do you did you find that you didn't need it? Yeah, right or, now we're using Apollo. Yeah, it's Apollo. It, I mean, it brings a lot to the table. It brings a lot more than we use currently. But as we've gained sophistication, there's a lot of things in Apollo that we will use. 
I my only concern with Apollo is that the sh- the size of it, the bundle size, is still quite large. Yeah. Right. Right. I found that you don't like write straight Apollo just in the demo kind of that I built. It, it was kind of just like abstractive way you just do like db dot yeah it is you don't even necessarily need to know that you're writing apollo although if you get into some of the caching types of things you'll be using yeah apollo directly on the on the client side using apollo client on the server side you really don't need to know because we abstract it away and that's this is the idea of breaking your backend logic into services and automatically connecting your graphql api to those services without having to write a single line of boilerplate. So I'll explain how that works just very briefly. You start by writing your SDL, your schema definition language for GraphQL that we all, anyone who is familiar with GraphQL knows that's the primary way that you specify your API. And then normally with Apollo, you would write a resolver map and you would say these functions execute when these API endpoints are called. And then, and then you'd hook those, you'd, whatever those would call other functions into your into your code base. The problem with that is that you you start to feel like you need to put a lot of code in there. The resolver map itself is not really a very pretty thing to look at, and if you have a large schema, you're shoving too much code into that file. And so at that point, you start feeling like you want to refactor the business logic out of the resolver file. And, and then you just call into these other functions from there, right? Where you, all the implementation is somewhere else. And then you just, like, each uh, resolver is like one line of code. But at that point, like, why not just do that for you? Why not just make that mapping for you? And the other problem with the resolver map is that it's not reusable. So if you have an implementation of, like, get me a list of my posts, and you want to call that from some other part of your backend, then you're not going to call directly into your resolver map. Like, what does that even mean? How would you do that? You'd have to give it, like, the things that it wants, like the context and the, the parent. And, like, what the, like what is, I don't know, well, the root, like, why am I, like, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's the wrong way to enter it. And so with services, we also abstract those out. So the services file is just a set of exported normal JavaScript functions that take in the parameters that represent what you would pass to the GraphQL API as parameters and nothing else. No other parameters, right? They're not taking a context in. They're not taking a root or a parent in. And the way we do that is by providing those things as globals, essentially. And you're you're in you're within the a single call there. And so you can do that safely. And so you just have access to those. And so any of those functions can call in and they can just use context. Um, and the reason that you want to do that in Redwood is so that your services files now represent your API for a given service uh, to the rest of your backend. So now different backend services. And when I say service, I mean kind of a chunk of your backend. So these are not like independently running things. They're just they're just uh, an organizational structure within your backend code. But if you think about them as discrete services, then you start, again, thinking in terms of APIs. And this all comes into how we write long-term maintainable code. And to me, the way that you do that is by thinking in APIs everywhere. Everywhere that you can, you're defining APIs and encapsulating responsibilities. So now you have services being able to call into these service files as just, you just import it and you use one of the exported functions from a service and you go on your merry way and they work as you expect. At the same time, your GraphQL API 
is just forwarding requests that come in via GraphQL automatically to the functions that are exported from your services file based on them having the same name as the GraphQL call. So you eliminate boilerplate and you make possible reusability and encapsulation across your backend services. Like my services file for posts has like five functions, posts, which gets all the posts, finds many posts, uh, post singular, which takes an ID, gets an I- just finds one post, create post, update post, delete post. It's very much, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm reminded of Rails controllers kind of here, mm-hmm. which was decent technology. It's like, no, all your like actions sit in this file and you just, this is the thing that you hit. This is what you interact with. Yeah, there you could think of them a little bit like controllers in that they're sort of the arbiter of business logic, but they're different in that we intend services to be a logical grouping of functionality for your backend. So let's say you're you're building um, like a forum software or something, and you you need a billing. It has billing. It has like the the posts that people make. So you might have initially in the very basic version, you have like a like a content service that handles posts and maybe the comments on the posts and categories and topics. And that might be represented by four or five, six different database tables. So a service is intended to cover multiple database tables. It's not a one-to-one mapping. Mm-hmm. Like a okay. controller would have been. Like a, yeah. like a controller might might be, or at least models. Like we're, This is why we say we're not Rails for JavaScript, right? None of this stuff yeah. makes sense in, in the Redwood architecture. And so a service is a higher level of abstraction than a database table. And you want that because if you start thinking about your backend in terms of just models, you'll end up with everything being tightly connected and you don't want that. Long-term maintainability suffers. You start using everything from everywhere um, and you get into trouble. I've seen it over and over. I still see it. I mean, a lot of Redwood is just trying to build a system that keeps me out of trouble, honestly, right? By enforcing (laughs) these ideas where it's like just... Do it in this way, and you will automatically get better maintainability because the structure of the application itself is guiding you towards better architectural decisions around your own code. What what about public APIs? Does it guide you towards that too? If you're like, well, we use these APIs, and why not just open them up? It's the same. They're the, it's the same place. Well, that's so. the beauty of of thinking in of thinking an API as a service that you're providing to a front-end client. If your GraphQL API is good enough for your own clients, then it's probably good enough for other people's clients. You may need to add some additional endpoints depending on what other use cases people have. But they're, again, they're just clients. So you can say, our front-end client needs these services. And third parties have told us they need to do these other things that we don't currently do. And so we can build out custom functionality for them that we have no front end for. And there's nothing in Redwood that says that you can't build out GraphQL APIs that you never consume yourself. They're just, again, they're just SDL files that then direct GraphQL calls to services files. And it's all the same stuff. And those services files could call into your other services files and reuse logic in those. Mm-hmm. And so, again, to me, like you can, you can, and many people are trying to erase the protocol between the front end and the back end. And I think that's, you can make that transparent. You can do RPC calls using any protocol you want and make it disappear. But to me, I want, I'm at a stage in my life where I want to think rigorously about my application. I want to know that it is going to take me as far as I need to go. And APIs are, to me, 
the best thing that we have from a long-term maintainability perspective. And I can, you can see it. You can see it in any company. Velocity starts to suffer if you're not thinking in these ways. Encapsulation, APIs, that is how you maintain velocity in a company. So we're really designing Redwood to be a sophisticated solution for startups and companies that are building for the long term. I've, I've heard similar things about like Amazon's work, like maybe their greatest sort of invention, I guess, early on was like, was uh, just the Bezos was saying like, you need to have an API, like, or else it doesn't ship or whatever. And so, and that's how you get AWS and that's how you get all these other things that just snowballed from that core decision, right? Yeah, this is, this is how you get teams to work together and not, and not slow down because you can, you can specify that interface and then you can, and it's also great from a testing perspective. Now you've decoupled your front end and your back end. You can mock out the database call, the, the, any of the data fetching, like you just return, you can mock out like the return from a GraphQL call and not worry at all about database tables and where they came from, right? Like separate those concerns on your database side and your business logic. Now you can just worry about is my is my business logic side returning the data that is correct from the database? And so you're separating out your integration test into two parts, but you can, I mean, you still might want to do cross-cutting integration tests, but having that separability gives you more speed because each of the two sides can operate independently if they want to. But with front-end developers becoming more back-end developers, um, having the ability to do all of this in JavaScript or TypeScript, that becomes really valuable. Front-end developers, like giving, giving front-end developers superpowers is something that I really love. I love that about the jam, oh, the jam stack. You said it, man. <laughs> That's, I'm trying to say that for a hot minute. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Netlify. Netlify is the best. If you don't know them, you got to go check out Netlify.com. They're really changing the game of deployment and hosting in the whole that whole world of like, what do I do with my code? Where do I put it so that it's live to the world? Uh, it's just they're really flipping that world on its head in the best way. And not because it's this brand new software that's just complicated, but if you take advantage of it, it's great. No, it's, 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 it's almost changing it because it's so simple. You make a website, it's probably in a Git repository. And when you push to it, you hook up Netlify to that, it sees that code and deploys it. That makes it super perfect for things like static site generators. If you've built a site with like Jekyll or 11D or Hugo or Metalsmith or all any one of those, and there's dozens if not hundreds of them, and they're all kind of awesome in their own way, those type of sites are perfect to put on Netlify because they're statically generated, and that's kind of what Netlify is, is a static file host. But that's that moment in which you got to be like, no, wait, this Jamstack paradigm goes so far beyond that. And our guest today, Tom, knows all about that. So I hope you're enjoying the episode today. But this Redwood JS is, is stretches those limits uh, 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 of what's possible to do in a Jamstack environment. It assumes that you're going to have a database and the things are going to be powered by data that way. And not necessarily everything is pre-rendered, but as much can be pre-rendered as possible. So it's just, you know, expand your mind of what the Jamstack can be. You know, there's still auth. 
there's still form handling. There's still running of any code on a server you want because of cloud functions. And Netlify helps with those things. It's not just like, hey, we're a static file host, but if you want to do other stuff, you know, just use some JavaScript. You'll be okay. No, no, no. Netlify helps you deploy. It helps you deploy to a CDN. It's great for all those static assets, but it helps you do all the sugar on top as well. Uh, It's just amazing. Please check out Netlify.com. How about just some little baby stuff about front ends just to, to fill in these gaps? Because I think it might be interesting to people to understand Redwood. Is it, um, does it assume, I assume it does, but I really, I don't know. Like SPA assumes routing. Yes. Is that a DF yes. baked in? So we've written our own router. router. You wrote your own router. We're a little Ooh. crazy. Well, it's because bold, we bold choice, bold choice. It's because we wanted <laughs> control and we wanted our router to look a certain way and have certain constraints um, that React Router wasn't doing. It's possible that someday we could. Uh, I, I just I don't know. I needed it to look a certain way. I just I don't like to be constrained by tools. Sure. And so if the tool doesn't feel right, then I'm going to do my own and and we'll make it sophisticated. It'll, it'll take a little time, but we'll do it. And then once it's done, you're going to love it. You're going to be like, wow, this is this is exactly what I've always mm. wanted. Um, That's great. And so it's it's an SPA, and we're not focusing on SSR, server-side rendering. That's not our primary focus. I'm looking towards the future. And so this is, this is again, Redwood is, Redwood to me is, we're almost building it for a year from now, for like targeting. This is like a game developer. They're like, when you build a game, you can't develop it for the, today's graphics cards. You have to build it for the graphics cards that will exist when you launch. And so a lot of the the gamble of Redwood is if we start building now and we make these assumptions about what technologies will be available and competent a year from now when we intend to do a 1.0 release, then we can hit that target more effectively than other people who are building for today's targets. Um, wow, and so that's pretty bold because it says right in the title, bring full stack to the jam stack, which it, it, to me a little bit implies SSR, but it's yeah, not but to it's, you. Well, so we're, we're stretching the meaning of the jam stack a little bit intentionally. It's yeah, because the sure. jam stack is this, this broader philosophy that involves um, a Git based deployment that's sort of built into yeah. the idea of jam stack um, and, and your deploy target. And and how you distribute, how you, you, like you, you put it on a CDN, uh, and this right. gets into the, some of the, the edge functions all work. The edge, yeah. This is, so this gets into the edge readiness of Redwood, but you can already see with places like Netlify and and Vercel that they they've embraced Lambda functions as a as a place that you, where you can do logic. And this is this is why Redwood exists at all because when Netlify came out with their functions and I saw them, it kind of blew my mind to think that you could just put code in your git repository and deploy it netlify would pick it up put your your html css all your front end stuff on cdn and then deploy your functions to lambda without you doing anything mm-hmm. and to me as soon as i saw that i was like this is this is a you could do you could do normal like full stack websites on this like what? What we we, I, we have to we have to do this now. Like this is this is critical. It's critical that we do this. And so I almost immediately started thinking about it and working on it. And you know I started working on Redwood a year and a half ago almost. 
but again, it's like these ideas were kind of half-baked and the technology is sort of weird and like do all the pieces fit together and mm. none of them were really quite where they needed to be. But as we've been working on it, they've gotten there. And now the, the biggest unsolved part is the database. Um, and so, just quick, quick on those function things, you use them, right? The the idea that there's this folder full of functions and they all run little lambdas and stuff, which I agree is just the coolest thing ever. Does that mean you have you have to deploy it to Netlify? No, there's nothing just... about there's nothing about Redwood that would be specific to Netlify. It's our first target because this is this is what I this is my dream. The reason that that's the case, my dream of a future is for something that I, in my mind, call a universal deployment machine, which means I write my code. It's all text. I just write text. And then I commit to GitHub, and then it's picked up, and it's deployed into reality. And that's it. That's the whole thing. That's that's what I want. That's what I've been Some looking for. Some service figures out what you need from that text. It's yeah, like, it's, I see what they're trying to do conf- here. It's a right. database. It, it's some configuration as code, or it's just implied. And... Uh, and then it's just, and then it's done. I don't worry about physical machines. I don't have to care about where they are if I don't care right now. I don't have to care about how much RAM they have. I don't have to care about where compute occurs. All of that. It's like what Heroku to me could have become eventually, but they are, are not and they have not. And so for the, for the past eight years, I'd say at least, I've been looking for a company to invest in that is essentially this universal deployment machine. It's just something that I thought was possible. Just abstract deployment to such a level as you just don't care. Like, And I don't know that this is a novel thought. I think there's probably many people that have had this thought where it's just like, why do I, why do I have to care about servers anymore? And serverless is a push to that, but it's, it's, it's not even far enough. It's just, you need something like this Jamstack mentality and, and that, that, that you could use Git that you just, commit to a Git repository, push it somewhere, and, and boom, like the rest happens. So Netlify is the closest thing that I've seen to a universal deployment machine. Right. And that's it's why I got right. involved like four or five years ago. When I saw it, I was like, this is awesome. And it could be even more awesome. And then it just kind of grew that direction more and more. And as I've been involved, and I've tried to kind of mold it that way as, as much as I can as, a, as an outsider. Although I am on the Netlify <laughs> board now. Hey, and so I can, can nice. I can get my fingers in. They the, seem to make smart calls. Put your like thumb that. on Matt. And, <laughs> yeah. Just. yeah. Uh, so I'm super excited about where we're going now, and and I think Redwood can be a, a driver f- of the imagination of like what can you do in the Jamstack mentality. So the reason that we're focusing on Netlify is because it's my dream of a universal deployment machine, but not, the technology is not ready to do that completely, right? Lambda functions have restrictions. If you put a GraphQL API on a Lambda function, eventually that, will, that won't work because you need to, you'll need to split it up. We can find ways to do that. Split up your API across multiple Lambdas so that you don't run out of the storage. Um, 300 whatever meg limit. Or right, whatever. whatever the limits are. But then you see the limits going up every year. Lambda continues mm-hmm. to march its increase towards awesomeness. And it will continue to do so. And imagine what it will be like in one or two or three or five years. Yeah. But for now... Lambda's are a good bet, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, it's inevitable that they'll get there. And I would love for Redwood to be a reason that they get there faster. If they start saying, hey, look at all these people building full-stack applications using Lambda with these frameworks and, and distributing their front ends on CDN and talking via GraphQL. We need Lambda to work better for this specific use case. And then they're like, let's build some stuff to make it work better for that use case. That's my, that's my dream. So... All that said, 
there is no reason that you couldn't spin up your own servers and deploy a Redwood application to a, a normal thing that is running your GraphQL API that has as much disk space as you want and has as much RAM as you want mm-hmm. and is in whatever locations that you want. There is no reason at all why you couldn't do that. Now, we haven't built the deployment machinery to do that, but we will. It's under it's it's in construction as we speak. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not like my my dream, my vision is for this other thing, but Redwood will work just as well as anything right now in in a, a more traditional deployment structure. Do I is do I detect a bold bet there though that that SSR is like a a year or maybe maybe it takes longer, but is there any point that pre-rendered stuff just becomes less of a big deal? I think the so what I hear mostly is that people want SSR because they're afraid of SEO hits. That's the that's one of the primary driving factors. There's also performance implications, but you can get, I think, most of the way from a performance perspective and an SEO perspective with pre-render. So one thing that is not built into Redwood yet, but will be, is the idea that you could pre-render based on a route. So let's say you have some home, some like marketing pages, as many websites do. They aren't really using much from the database, or those things could be pulled in after the fact. And those can be built in a, in, and deployed in a traditional Jamstacky way, where you do the where you pre-render at build time. You pre-render all the way to HTML. There's no, you don't need any React or anything. If you didn't want to, certainly you could have React in there. If, like there could be different levels of how much, how far you want to go from a pre-render perspective. But you could go all the way to just HTML, CSS. And, and then you choose what pages you want to do that. And by route, you just say pre-render this route, pre-render this route. This route takes parameters, so here's the a list of the parameters that this route can take, and just iterate through them at build time and build them. Like this is all none of this is revolutionary. People already do this, but it means that from an SSR perspective, you you are you can solve some of those problems. And the problem with SSR is that it's just it's a pain in the ass. Like if we can drop it, then we should. And so it's it's not my focus. Some, uh, people want SSR right now. Like that's that's fine. Um, I think we can get yeah. most of the way there and solve most of people's use cases without SSR. Yeah, I, I guess I mostly meant pre-rendering. That like that like actually having HTML files that represent a route. Oh yeah, I, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Pre-rendering. I mean, that is the mainstay of the Jamstack. That is today what yeah, most people right, think of right. when you say Jamstack is pre-render. And absolutely, we can do that. Why not? Of course, build time. I mean, we have a build step. If you have a build step. You can do all kinds of things with a build step. Mm. <laughs> you can indeed. Um, yeah, great. Yeah, I just didn't know if there's even like like what's one step beyond even pre-rendering. You know, is it is it edge? You know, like just this URL is already ready to go. Is it? Yeah. Well, there's now there's now incremental building that you see becoming available. Um, right. So like Gatsby, you can do incre- like incremental builds on Gatsby. Like that's necessary for large content sites because you just don't want us there and pre-render build all your pages every time. And you don't, like if you if you make one change in your CMS, you're like, okay, let's rebuild everything or even just rebuild that one page and, and push it out if you've got some local caching or whatever. Like it's all painful. And so if you can have your, if you can have your host do that for you and just push out your change and then someone pulls a page that's not in the cache um, or you could warm the cache if you have some cache warming process. Um, but for, for smaller sites or whatever, you just let, let users kick off the, the first render of it, store those in the cache 
uh, the host can do that for you. And so I, I think we're getting a lot more sophistication around how big of content sites you can serve with the Jamstack mentality and and not suffer these really long build times. And we can leverage the same technology. Yeah. Is it, yeah, I wonder if it, is it that it could almost become the job of a good host to do that pre-rendering rather than the framework that you happen to pick? Yeah. I mean, what you could just send it a list of all your, like, let's say you're not doing pre-rendering at, at your, at your build time. You, you want to do it sort of lazily afterwards. We're just like, okay, my site is out there. The, the the deploy was essentially instant. And then you have a file that has just iterated all your possible URL parameters or whatever. And then the host is like, all right, I'm just going to hit all these and, and warm the cache. And it takes a few seconds or a minute or five minutes or whatever it takes. And you don't care. If someone gets one of the pages in the meantime, it takes them you know, a second to get that page. But like, it's, this is not the end of the world. But then from then on, after the cache is warmed, it's like 30 milliseconds to get that page. And and you're very very happy about that. This is this is this is universal deployment machine stuff. This is exactly why I love Netlify because Netlify is doing all of this stuff. Uh, it is notable that they 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 don't even touch data yet. As you know, unless you're talking about whatever some data that's just in your repo because right. you're choosing some flat file storage or whatever. That seems interesting. So far, it was like. Um, I don't, you know, they they seem to have partnered with Fauna to some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, like use that—that's a good one. Yep. But it just—it's just seemed it's like it's been an obvious next step for a while. But I don't know because sometimes companies and frameworks choose a wider funnel on purpose. You know, if you look at Gatsby, their bet is I don't want to be your data store. I'm going to build connectors to every right. goddamn data store there is. That's our bet. Whereas I don't know, we don't. It's yet to be seen what Netlify's bet is. Is it going to be use our data store, or is it going to be we'll help you with whatever data store? You know? Yeah, the data part is hard because this is still where differentiation in the needs of applications is greatest. Is in what database technology you need, and and so people are going to want certain characteristics from their data, from their database, and so you might choose a relational database or a NoSQL database. You might need different levels of global distribution. You want a certain number of read replicas. You want your write um, your write data to have certain performance characteristics that allow you to do certain geographic distribution or not. Is this part of your dream in some way that you don't have to? That even this is this? Well, will some developers always have to care about that kind of stuff, or would even that become? I don't think it's. I don't think it's a forever need. No, I mean yes, this is part of the dream of of a, of a universal deployment machine would be that. You wouldn't have to care. Now we're farther off from that because the, it's, it's just data is yeah, data is weird. data. It is like where everything comes from, and how you query it can be so drastically different. Like just running CPU cycles is running CPU cycles, business logic, right? Like serving static HTML out of a CDN is is that. Like these things are in this architecture. Those things are more generic. It's just serving files and churning a CPU, but the data. It really is dependent on your specific use case, and that's why it's the last to fall. But I think mm-hmm. I think it can fall, and I think you could even have a system eventually that could be a unified relational and non-relational database where you get the performance characteristics of either, depending on what you want. So let's say you have your your relational data talking about like a a forum or something. You can have all your relationships between your posts and who makes comments on what and who's following whom. But then at the end of the day, each post is just a blob. 
and you don't mm. you don't need a relational database for that. You could look that up yeah. from anywhere, and you could you could edge ca- cache. I don't know it how and, to make good decisions like that. Like I've been a front end developer forever, and I care about data. I know it's important, but I don't know how to make smart decisions about data. You know, I could do real simple stuff. But I think Firebase was a big early player in this. It's just like I don't know. It's like a big piece of JSON. <laughs> Go, good luck. You know, right? And that was appealing to me. So I'm like, you oh, can't I know do arrays. Sorry, but we'll get back to that later. Yeah, uh, everything's an array. You can't do an object, and there's a lot of money in it. It right, like like Amazon would want nothing more than for you to use Aurora because once you have, you're you're there. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just think, I think it'll take some time to get there on the database side, and people are doing interesting things. Fauna is doing really interesting things. I think the developer experience of Fauna needs to be refined. It's because it, it brings in new concepts. In NoSQL, you can do relation E kinds of things, but yeah, it's a whole new technology you have to learn. Like, can we do something that looks more like relational, or can Fauna be that? Can can Mongo be that? There's a lot of people working on databases. I think it's an unsolved problem still. I think at some point the machine could be intelligent enough to just do it for you, right? Like machines are good at figuring out how to optimize things. We can teach them to do that. Where you're like, I don't care where you put my blob of this post, just you know, mm-hmm. just make it fast for me to access. And it could be like, oh, I've analyzed your usage patterns. And so I'm going to move the storage of this post data into this other sort of database situation so that it can be accessed more quickly. And it's just like, does it for you. I think that's totally possible. What does, what does Prisma assume? I don't know much about it. Is it, it, is it, it, you're not betting on it. Like it can go anywhere, right? Because Prisma can connect to MySQL, but other stuff too? Or Yeah, so Prisma, so it's Prisma 2. So let's differentiate from Prisma mm-hmm. 1, which is more tied to specific technologies and GraphQL and stuff. So Prisma 2 is really more of a query builder. It's like, take, take my, here's code, generate the correct queries to query a specific database. So right now it supports MySQL and Postgres. And in the future, it will support Fauna and Mongo and, and all, all the, the NoSQL databases. So they intend to be sort of a unified interface to your data, whatever that means. And, and that's neat because with an architecture like Redwood, it will be easy to say, I want either a relational database only or a non-relational, a NoSQL database only, or maybe I want a mix. And you got to figure that out for yourself right now, where you're going to store which things. But there's no reason that you can't have connections to both. And if you have properly serverless style databases um, like Fauna, where it's where it's built from the beginning to work in a serverless fashion, where you you connect from anywhere, doesn't care. You connect as many times as you want, doesn't care. It takes care of all the connection pooling issues for you or whatever. I think more and more will become that way as more people build with this architecture, which I think they will because it's it's powerful. You can scale infinitely with this architecture with no effort for certain websites, but it's probably like 80 to 90% of most web yeah. applications. Just like Jamstack, right? It can be about 80, 90%. Right, it covers say. most of the use cases, <laughs> and I think that's great. And for those last 20%, you're going to be writing some custom stuff anyway. So Prisma is opinionated a little bit, but Prisma, can, it, it's your way of being opinionated without being opinionated. Yeah, it, it's well, we chose it because we we come from the Rails world, and we need something that looks like Active Record. And they're just, <laughs> we tried out all the ORMs and query builders in the JavaScript TypeScript world, and none of them felt right or nearly as good. We're like, we can't, we just, they're just not good enough. Like the way that you make relationships between tables work, just kludgy and 
Just none of them worked. And then we came across Prisma, which was very early. This is, I mean, probably almost a year ago now. Super duper early. And we're like, this has the beginnings of what feels right. And so we're like, all right, well, let's switch to this and see how it feels. And so we implemented it with that. Um, and and we've worked closely with them ever since. And uh, we know the, the CEO over there very well. We talk, you know, he comes in and we talk with him fairly often. Uh, I do a lot of work in Berlin anyway. They're, they're based in Berlin. So I go over to their office sometimes. So we have a really close relationship with Prisma, which is great because it means that we can influence some of the direction. We can say Redwood needs this from Prisma. And they'll be like, oh, okay, great. And they love Redwood because it's a reason why people would use Prisma. And so it's a win-win for both sides. We can both help each other be better. And it's, it's just really nice. Like it doesn't do too much for you. It's not trying to be an ORM. It's not trying to create these really fancy objects out the other end. Like Rails has models. And the problem with models is that models turn into these giant bags of functions and, and grow unbounded forever. Because <laughs> um, you know, your code's got to go somewhere, right? But then you've got your, all your code attached to your database tables which is not how you should think about things. So I think it leads to too much table-bound code. Anyway, in Prisma, you're writing, you're, you write your queries and you get back out just a data object. That's it. There's no, there's, it's just a JavaScript object. There is no encapsulation around it other than that. There are no functions attached to it. It's not a class. It's not anything. It's just a data hash. And in that, you, you then start thinking in a more functional way. And saying, where should my manipulation of this data exist? Indeed, which service should own the manipulation of that data and be in charge of writing that data back to the database? And that, again, gets back to long-term maintainability. Where does your code need to live? How do you want to split up your services? What's the right APIs? Not having too much power and encapsulation of the, this bag of methods around manipulating objects I think gets you closer to a, this more functional mindset that I, that I think um, just leads to better long-term maintainability. Oh, that's nice. And the Prisma is like the first time I've really seen like migrations in like a JavaScript ORM. Kind yeah, of thing. right. Well, it, well, yes. And also also migrations. They were like, oh yeah, we have a query builder and also migrations. And we're like, migrations, hello. Yeah, like wh- uh, where, yeah. where have those been, right? We need those. If we want to be anything yeah. that someone coming from the Rails world is like, I could actually use Redwood. And then we're like, okay, here's how you do migrations. And they're just like, I'm sorry, I have to do this all manually. And like, what's the process for this? And, and they just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough, right? And so Prisma being like, oh, we got migrations too. And indeed, their migrations are like declarative, essentially. It's like, here's what I want my database yeah. to look like, figure it out. This is more yeah, towards yeah. the universal deployment machine idea. It's like, just mm. tell me stuff. And I will make it happen for you. I'm a machine. That's what I do. That's what I'm good at. <laughs> Just yeah, to tell no, you where I'm at in the world, cool. <laughs> I wrote my first Rails migration this morning. Oh, congratulations. Oh, boy. Thank you. I'm really a front-end guy. I'm not like a baby developer, but I but I, I really needed a change of freaking table for something I was doing. And I didn't <laughs> want to wait for to pull somebody aside to do it. So I read the fripping manual. And I did bin rails, whatever, and scaffolded the damn thing and wrote it. And I was very proud of myself. Uh, <laughs> Good work. 
Have you seen this? Just is interesting because there's a little bit of magic. We only have so much time, and I'd like to at least get you to mention your startup and all the what's going on there. But there's this thing called GQL lists I saw the other day that looked cool as hell. If I was making a framework, I would bake this in in a minute because frameworks have magic in them. You know, why not have more <laughs> magic? It's it's like you don't even write the GraphQL query. You just use stuff in the component, and it just knows what you mean, and it makes the query for you. Yeah. You know? So like, we oh, that's we've looked at that. Um, it's cool it's a cool demo it makes me afraid because <laughs> should make you afraid <laughs> it makes me afraid because it's too to me it's too much magic there's too much that it's doing that i don't understand mm. and this is also i have some you know one of my gripes about rails is that it, it can be too magical sometimes it's like how are you doing that tell me how you're oh doing God. that I had a thing where I typed debugger, I ran the code in Rails today, and then it gave me this object, and I was like, okay, object, and it showed me what was in it, and I was like, the thing that I'm looking for isn't in it, but then in, in the console, I typed thing dot thing, and it was there, and I was like, oh, it's a method on itself, but it's not in itself, and there's no way to determine like if a thing dot something, if that dot is like inside of it or a method on it, there's no way to distinguish that. And right. it blew my mind. Yeah, this is, well, uh, and so this comes to Ruby. And again, I love Ruby. Ruby made me what I am. But I have my gripes with Ruby as well. And well, one of the I biggest problems, one of, <laughs> what, <laughs> one of the biggest problems for Ruby, with Ruby for me is, is the ability to do metaprogramming and magic at the language level. And so in Redwood, because JavaScript and TypeScript themselves do not allow you to do particularly much magic, you do it at the at the at build time. If you want to do magic, you do it at, at build time. And it, it, to me, it encourages you to do a bit less of it. And so the magic elements in Redwood are pretty thin. They might feel kind of magical, like just automatically connecting your services files to your GraphQL SDL definitions and, and creating the resolver for you. But if you look at the code that does it, it's like 20 lines. Or the idea of cells, which allow you to do more declarative data fetching in your front end. It's just a higher order component that's like 30 lines long. And so the magic, we want, we want it to feel powerful, but like you can understand it. Like you could go in and read the code. And if you want to understand the Rails magic, sit down because you're reading 50, 100,000 lines of code. Yeah, you get dumped into the just... It's like api.rails or whatever, or the guide, which is 200,000 words. Yeah, so. it's just, I just, I like a little less magic because for me, it's always, it's always about long-term maintainability. I will gladly take a little less magic if it allows me to trace what's going on. And in a, in a mature Rails app, even tracking down what code runs on a certain page, you're like looking at an element on a, a rendered page and you're like, okay, I'm going to trace down what code is producing this rendered output? In a in an if you're using React, it's better because you can get the inspector and you can find out exactly what component it is. And componentization is great. Like that's why React is awesome. But in the traditional way, like you're doing it and it's 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 so hard. It's so hard to track down. The way that I do it is I find a string that looks fairly unique around that thing that's being rendered and I search for it. And like that's just Oh not, yeah, amen. That's just <laughs> that's just not a good answer to 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 that problem, right? And so React yeah. and less magic and GraphQL and all of these things that allow you to just trace what's going on and like that kind of transparency into how the front end talks to the back end 
It's loggable. You can log those GraphQL queries and see all the data that's going through in a first-class way instead of trying to tease them out of some restful call and it's all jammed into the URL or it's in a post somewhere. It's just... And, and GraphQL is... I mean, I also have my problems with... Gra- I have my problems with everything, right? Don't get me wrong. GraphQL has its issues. My, GraphQL's main problem is that it's young and it doesn't have enough tooling around it yet. But we're doing things to, to solve that. So one problem with GraphQL on the back end, for instance, is that you have the N plus one problem, right? You're like, I want to get this record and all of its children, which you could do in yeah. a single query. And it would come back very fast. But the way the GraphQL splits things up, you get the object and then you run a resolver once for every single thing that comes back. Like that's the naive implementation that a GraphQL API would give you. So you get N, well, you get what's one plus n. You get one, the, the parent object, and then you, the resolver is going to run for every you know child in the in the result set of that. Like, give me my list of posts. Now I'm going to go fetch every post individually. Right? That's insane. You would never do that. And so solving the n plus one problem is something that we're going to have the machines do for you. And in fact, Prisma takes care of this for you. So you do batching. Mm, which I was use, curious. Does you Apollo would, solve some problems in that arena too? Doesn't it? Um, mm. I'm not. They might in some of their technology, not the stuff that we're using currently. Um, mm. But I, I, I don't actually know. But this is a problem that mach, that machines should solve for you. Where you're like, I mm. just, you know, I'm going to write this in the way that GraphQL wants me to write it with resolvers, where the resolvers are very easy to write because each resolver is just saying, just fetch the data that I'm responsible for. And then delegate any sub-objects to their own resolvers. Like, it's just, it's a beautiful, easy-to-understand way to fetch data. But it has these performance characteristics that are challenging. And so our solution to this class of problem always is teach the machines how to do it for you. I had a, uh, a GraphQL error today that was the... the from a developer perspective, the debugging it, what it threw to the console was inscrutable. It was absolutely useless. So I think of that as ba- it being young too. Is that the, the developer experience sometimes is just hopeless? You know, you don't know where to go. Yeah, uh, this is another challenge that we have, which is making error messages consistent and reasonable across all of these different pieces. Which is something that I can't say we solve particularly well yet, but it's absolutely something that we want to solve. Great. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Chatterbug, you want to pitch it? Tell us about it. You know anything? Sure. Yeah. So my current startup is called Chatterbug. It's for foreign language learning. So if you want to learn Spanish, French, or German, or English, mm-hmm. then you can do that. We're focusing on the German market right now. We have a lot of steam over there, and so we're kind of doubling down in that market. And cool. um, it's been really fun. I'm, I've I co-founded it with some other GitHub former GitHub people. One of my co-founders, Scott Chacon, and then. Liz Clinkenbeard and Russell Belfer also were GitHub team members. And so the four of us got together and we started this language learning company. It's just, it's an, it, it continues to be an unsolved problem in the world. How do you learn a language most efficiently and most enjoyably? And can you apply oh, yeah. software to that problem in a tasteful way that nobody's done before? That market is, is large and it's challenging, let me tell you. <laughs> a totally different animal from GitHub. Completely different market, consumer. Uh, it's definitely stretching right. the boundaries of my imagination and problem solving. This is, uh, well, <laughs> as somebody who like went to school for Japanese, lived in Japan, and then left Japan, and I've been losing Japanese rapidly ever since. Like, uh, yeah, you're just like, I'd pay somebody 20 bucks a week or a month or whatever to like 
just practice, that would be yeah. great. Well, so I'll, I'll give you a quick taste of the magic of Chatterbug, and that is it's kind of a two-part system. The main thing that we offer are what we call live lessons, which are 45-minute chats with fluent speakers. And this is because if you want to learn a language, it turns out that you get good at what you practice. So if you practice speaking, you will become good at speaking. If you only practice doing Duolingo on your phone, then you will get very good at Duolingo on your phone. Mm -hmm. If you go to a country... <laughs> I have... Me and the owl are pretty tight. <laughs> and, I, and that's... I mean, it, it is a... It can be an element of learning a language, but it by no means will help you speak that language, right? So if you go... Mm, right. If you spend a year every day on one of these, one of these digital-only apps where you're doing vocabulary and, and a little bit of like speaking into the microphone, then, and you go to the country where you want to go and speak that language, you will be useless, guaranteed, 100% guaranteed you won't be able to say anything useful. Because it's, and I don't know why this is shocking to people, right? Because everywhere else in our lives, we're like, I'm going to read books about, I don't know, baseball, and then I'm going to go play baseball. And I expect <laughs> to be good at baseball. And you're like, no, nobody expects that. Everybody knows that you can't learn to play baseball from a book, but everyone expects that you can learn a language from a book. And it's just not possible. You can learn about the language. You can learn a lot of things that you need to speak the language, but you will never actually be good at speaking the language because your brain has to adapt to speaking the language. And so we have built a system around building an entire curriculum that you can go through as you study on your own the most efficient way to learn vocabulary is through spaced repetition. So we have spaced repetition, mm -hmm. we have readings, we have videos and, and audio that you can listen to all on yeah. your own. But then you practice for real. Like and then you and then you go and you practice it. You put it, you put that stuff into use, and the system keeps track of where you are and makes sure that the material that you're going over, the exercises that you go over in the live lesson with your tutor are exactly what you've been studying. And so your mind is optimally prepared for that experience. And then you kind of go back and forth between these two things. Do some study on your own. Go talk to a fluent speaker. And if you do that, you can learn a language. If you were to do it, this is the other thing with language learning. Everyone's like, oh, learn language in three months. You know, become fluent in, in two, two weeks. I don't know what they say these days, but it's all BS. <laughs> yeah. You need at least, yeah. if you were learning full time, like eight hours a day, five days a week, you could become, I think you data that we have suggests that you could become, you could have a, a decent level of conversational fluency in one year. A okay. year? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. Well, this is the problem with the industry is that the industry makes you feel like you can do it substantially faster than that. Yeah. Um, and and it's almost impossible. You might have a savant here and there that can pick up a language in a much more rapid way, but normal people with normal amounts of time, it takes a long time. But it's it's a skill that you pick up when you do. And so our job is to not lie to you that you can do this without practicing it, and then make it possible to put the time in and, and stick and stick to it. Um, I have this thought about practicing where you're the amount of time that you can practice expands for, as you get better at it. Like if you said, you want to learn the piano, practice eight hours today, you can't. You literally right. can't practice eight hours that day because you just don't, right. you're it's just, just you'll be tired. You just can't do it. It's exhausting. But, but it's, if you're a great piano player, you could play 16 hours a day because you just, the world is open right. to a lot of it is A lot of it is the mental, the mental overhead of it. Like once you build yeah. these things into muscle memory or 
I guess, tongue and larynx memory when it comes to speech, <laughs> I guess. I don't know if those are muscles. Um, yeah. Then, then it takes less mental effort. And this is true across any skill that you want to learn. Like take, take any skill you want to learn. You can learn literally any skill you want. All you have to do is put the right amount of time in. And, and it doesn't matter if you're a kid or you're an adult. It's just a factor of time. There might be some slight differences in, in the slope of the learning curve between the two. But the primary factor is time. Dedicated, deliberate practice is I'm the thing that matters. At watching TV, for example. Just you're really incredible. good at watching TV, right? You're like, yeah. <laughs> you're like Malcolm Gladwell level expert. <laughs> I am. TV watcher. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, uh, remote, right. remote with your eyes closed. It's, incredible. <laughs> it's just incredible. <laughs> well, we should wrap up. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Tom. I, I, we didn't even talk about my favorite feature, cells of Redwood, uh, that much, but uh, it's wonderful innovation in front end. Tech. Yeah, you can go so, look so at them on the website. The, red, the website is redwoodjs.com. Oh, and I should say, if you want a Redwood sticker, I will ship one to you. Literally. Anywhere in the world for free. Oh. And you, there's a form on the redwoodjs.com website. Go fill it out and I will ship you stickers and you'll have them in a couple in a week or two. Okay. Clear link. And uh, how can people follow you and give you money if they're not doing that already? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Mojombo, M-O-J-O-M-B-O. Same on GitHub. Chatterbug is chatterbug, C-H-A-T-T-E-R-B-U-G.com. And I think that's those are the main ones. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank I can you. just feel uh, this data from this forum going through Prisma. I can just feel it happening. <laughs> just, just getting consumed. So, uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate that and your time. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast or choice. Be sure to start heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. Ever shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you. And Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to <laughs> say? Hey, shoptalkshow.com. 